Have you ever swept the floor? You know, I mean, like you get a broom and a dustpan and you're, you're sweeping up, you know, all that cinnamon that you spilled out when you were making that pumpkin spice oyster casserole, you know, just uh, all, all that cinnamon all over the place. And you, and you sweep and you sweep and you sweep. But you know the most annoying thing about using a broom and a dustpan? is there's always that one last line that you can't get in the dustpan. You, you can hit it from every angle, and there's still going to be that little bit that's just kind of sitting there. It's, it's so annoying. That little bit of dust or cinnamon or confetti or whatever it is, you just, you just can't get it up. I saw where one uh, online clean fluencer, she says, well, I just sweep up piles all over the house, and then I go to my vacuum cleaner and just suck up all the piles. That's, that's a brilliant idea. That's, that's really good. You know, we can also just sweep it under the rug, right? But, but eventually, you're going to sprain your ankle because you're going to have so much cinnamon under the rug that you're going to trip and fall. So you can't just sweep it under the rug. I guess you could use a vacuum cleaner. But, but if you think about that little bit of cinnamon, that little bit of dust, that little bit of confetti, it's almost like making decisions in life. Because no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we plan, no matter how hard we do things, there's always the one thing that's left, the one thing that's left out, the one thing we miss, the the one uncertain thing. And what can we do about that? Well, can we avoid the one thing? Can, Can we make perfect decisions? Perfect decisions that always turn out exactly how we want them to turn out, just, just spotless, clean decisions with no problems? No, we can't. That's, that's not impossible. But what we can do is we can approach decisions in a way and with something that helps us overcome the things we can't sweep up, helps us overcome the things that we miss. We continue our series, Navigating Life, where we're considering the the keys to making good, healthy, wise decisions. And we're going to be looking at the Bible at James. And and James, what he's going to do is he's going to help us to see that there's one defining thing that we always need as we approach decisions. And what is that one defining thing? Well, let's find out together. Our message today is titled, Turning Towards Spotless. And we're going to be looking at James chapter 3, the first part of verse 17. This is what James says. But the wisdom from above is first pure. The one thing that we need when we're navigating through all the decisions of life, the one thing we need the most when we are making decisions is not a good group of advisors. It's not a college education. It's not a degree from the school of hard knocks. It's not work experience. It's not experience playing on a sports team. What we need the most is wisdom from above. In all the decisions of life, what we need the most is wisdom from above. Now, what is that? I mean, wisdom from above. It sounds like something you'd hear in the middle of a Disney princess movie, right? She's trying to fall in love. I need some wisdom from above. But it's, it's not a fairy tale type of thing. It's, it's a very real thing. And the, the type of wisdom that comes from above is heavenly. It's supernatural. It's divine. It's the wisdom that comes from the one true God. Now, someone may ask, well, well how do we know if there's one true God? I read an interesting statistic this week that a, a Pew Research poll from 2009 2009, said that there was 56% 
of evangelical church-going Christians in this Pew Research that said that there are more than one way to God. Church people in 2009 saying, yeah, there's, there's probably some, some other ways to God. That was years ago. And so we always have to remember that sometimes the, the things that we look at around, we go, gosh, what is this world coming to? Well, it started more than a decade ago. And sometimes it started inside the church. It started with the church forgetting and remembering who God is. So how do we know that there's one true God? Well, I think there's about a gazillion and seven ways we could try to answer that question. But since everybody wants to go to lunch, let's just start with one, okay? Just one, and we'll go with this question. Where did the world come from? Where did the world come from? And, and, and just for a moment, you know, not primarily the Genesis biblical view, not, not the Big Bang theoretical view, not the, the Greek or, or Norse or, or Jedi mythic views, you know, whatever is out there. Let's just, let's just keep it super, super simple and just go with this question. Logically, logically, where did the world come from? Or maybe we can put it this way. Where does anything come from? Where does anything come from? Well, it's created. Like, we know that, right? It's, it's created. From government guidelines to Hemi engines to Prada bags to soy lattes to, to pumpkin spice oyster casserole, you know, whatever it is, we know that things are created. That, that is a, a basic intergalactic reality that things are created. Nothing comes from nothing. Whether you're Christian or, or atheist or mystic or agnostic or whatever else you believe, we know basically in the inner workings of who we are that all things that exist in some way had to be created by someone. They don't just happen. About 2,979 years ago, King David wrote this, Psalm 19.1, the heavens tell of the glory of God. In other words, when we are standing in creation, when we are looking at amazing things in nature, when we are gazing at these fascinating pictures that come to us from outer space, we are not quick to go, yeah, I think I just appeared. I think I just materialized. No, there's something about looking at creation that gives us a sense of awe. It makes us think, wow, there's, there's something bigger than me because in the deepest part of who we are we've all been created with this innate understanding that something doesn't come from nothing we all know in the deepest part of who we are that we can't sweep that reality under the rug we understand that nothing in the universe just happened we can remove religion from all of it and we understand that nothing just happens everything you enjoy in this universe was created in some way, shape, or form, it's all created. So when we ask the question, where did the world come from? The most logical answer, regardless of, of who you are, where you grew up, what country you're from, what time in history you're from, the most logical answer is that the world came from creation. Not super random explosion creation, but inside we know that it had to be created by some creative spiritual being. And David declares what has been tattooed in the operating system of every person's soul. 
he declares that that creator is the one true, awesome, sovereign God. Now, we can't convince you that's true. If in 2009, 56% of people that were in an evangelical church said that, well, there may be lots of ways to go to heaven, I, I'll just say, I, I don't know how we can convince you on our own that that's true, that God is God and that, that he made the world and everything's in it. But it is our hope, it is our prayer that by God's spirit, by his mercy, by his grace, that he would help you discover that is true so that you can have the freedom and the satisfaction and the confidence that comes from knowing that God is God and he created the world and everything that's in it. And when it comes to navigating life, when it comes to making decisions in life, that truth, that wisdom from above is what we need the most. We need wisdom from above. And where do we get it? Well, in a super practical way, we get it from the Bible. God has been so immensely kind to us that we do not have to go outside and wait for shapes or words to form in the clouds. He's been so kind to us that he has given us his book with his truth. And it's important for us to remember that it is his book with his truth and all the truth that we find in the Bible comes from God and God alone. He is the source. He is the instigator. He is the initiator. About 2,950 years ago, King Solomon was writing some advice to his kids. Now, now Solomon was a, a wise and powerful king. He could give lots of really good advice. So what advice did he write down for his kids? Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we have to be afraid of God to be wise. Well, yes and no. It's, it's not fear like cowering fear. It's, it's fear as in awe. To have a sense of fear of the Lord means that you have a, a humble attitude, a, an attitude of awe and reverence, and that attitude helps you and causes you to enjoy the majesty and power of God. It's not a, a hard, arrogant heart that says, well, God, I'll, I'll follow you as long as, as everything works out the way I want it to work out. You know, God, I'm good with you as long as that boy likes me or that girl likes me. I'm good with you as long as my parents are nice to me. I'm, I'm good with you as long as I get that car or get into that college or, or marry the right person or get the great job or the right benefits or get to retire early or my team wins or I get to golf, you know, three times a week or, or my favorite pie, you know, is every Christmas. I'm good, God, as long as everything goes right in my life, I'm good with following you. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a, a humble, eager attitude that says, God, without you, I am hopeless, and my heart will be restless. That's what it means to have a fear of the Lord. Finding wisdom from above begins with a humble attitude of awe, of reverence. And how do we get that attitude? Well, we don't get it naturally, okay? Uh, we, we all know this. We, we have a sense of awe and, and reverence in a lot of different things. I remember uh, listening to a sermon years ago, and a man was talking about watching a, a professional football game with his son, and, and this guy, you know, made this, this catch, the wide receiver made a catch, and, and his son was like, oh, that, that was an excellent, great 
awesome catch. And his dad said, really? <laughs> Let's just think through that. And they began to have a conversation about the majesty and the power and the awesomeness of God. And he goes, are those the same thing? You know, is that, is that the same word that we use for both of those? It's, it's a football catch or it's the God who spoke the world into existence. Awesome only works with one of those. But see, we're, we're prone to look at the catch and go, yes. See, we understand all. We, we understand reverence. But sometimes we miss the, the magnitude of what it means to be reverent to God because it's not natural, it's, it's supernatural. To have a, a humble, awesome reverence of God it's something that has to supernaturally happen in our life. In other words, there has to be a change. And how does that change happen? Well, there's only one way. There, there's only one way. You can't buy it. You can't go to school for it. You can't give enough money to the church for it. There's only one way that you can have a supernatural awe and reverence of God. One way that you can truly have a fear of the Lord. And that comes from believing in and relying on and trusting in and clinging to Jesus Christ. It is in the person of Jesus, in his birth, in his life, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his promised return, only there can we discover that those things about Jesus are, are not a fairy tale story that was contrived to try to create a, a neat world religion. No, the truth about Jesus Christ is the only and ultimate hope in the universe. The death of Jesus on the cross, it provides us the ultimate rescue that changes our lives right now, today, in this moment, but it changes our lives 10 years from now, and it changes our lives 10,000 years from now. See, this, this isn't religion, this is relationship, and that relationship with the person of Jesus Christ changes things today and changes things 10,000 years from now. Imagine you're in the mountains and you're in the middle of a, a brutal blizzard. I mean, it's just terrible. What would you be looking for? If you're up way high in the mountains and you're in the middle of a, a blizzard, you're going to be looking for what? You're going to be looking for a safe warm place. I was reading something earlier this week and it, and it brings in that, that story, that picture of a blizzard, and it brings in, weaves in the fear of the Lord and the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and the way it described it was this, it is as if the, the holiness and the wrath and the majesty and the power and the justice and the judgment of God are all in that blizzard. And it is sweeping over us with great authority and power, but we're not afraid. Why? Because of the cross. Because Jesus on the cross created a place, created a way for us in the middle of the storm to be totally safe, not cowering in fear, but rather trembling in fear that our God is God, that he is holy and just and full of wrath and judgment, but we're safe because of the cross. We're safe because of what Jesus has done. We're safe because that God is our God and he has rescued and redeemed us. What kind of decisions are you facing right now? 
Go ahead, just, just get one of them in your mind. What, what's the decision you're facing this week or next week or next month or, or maybe this afternoon? Are any of the decisions you're in the middle of right now creating some conflict? Creating some confusion? Are there any decisions that you need to make that you're nervous about? That you're afraid about? Any decisions that are creating fear? Part of what it means to turn your heart toward wisdom from above is to turn your heart in such a way that you're turning to God so that you will know and feel that you are totally safe in his majesty and his power. Totally safe. And why would your heart feel totally safe in the power and majesty of God? Because you have been rescued and redeemed by Jesus Christ. Because he's become your greatest treasure. And no matter who lets you down, it might be your parents, it might be your kids, it might be your spouse, it might be your boss, it might be your coworkers, it might be that player on your favorite team, it might be any other person on the planet, whoever lets you down, whatever situation doesn't go your way, you're still safe because Jesus cannot and will not fail you. This is who he is. He's not just a religious leader. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's not a figment of our imagination. He rules. He reigns. He will rule and reign. He's the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. And I'm not just saying all these words to add emphasis. I'm saying them because Jesus will not fail. He cannot fail. No matter who is elected or not elected, Jesus will not fail. No matter what happens with the economy or the stocks or your health or your family or your team, Jesus will not fail. We have to keep reminding ourselves of that because, dear friends, when we leave, we'll forget it. We will. We'll, we'll just forget. We'll forget that if we've been rescued and redeemed by Jesus Christ, if we've been saved by the gospel, we do not have to cower in fear when we're making decisions. We don't have to cower in fear with the decisions in our life. Why? Because Jesus didn't miss the last line of sentiment. We don't have to cower in fear when we face decisions in life because Jesus has fully and perfectly swept away the curse of sin and death. If we've been rescued and redeemed by Jesus Christ, we don't have to cower in fear with the decisions that we have to make because Jesus has made us spotless, spotless before God. We are forgiven. We are free. That's the confidence that comes from wisdom from above. We will not get that confidence from wisdom on earth or wisdom from below. It's only from the wisdom that comes from above. And James says that wisdom is first pure. It's, it's clean. It's, it's uncorrupted. Your wisdom, my wisdom, it ain't like that. The wisdom of doctors and lawyers and nurses and, and TSA agents and coaches and teachers and pastors and parents and grandparents and everybody else in your life, it's not clean and, and uncorrupted. On our best days, I mean, when, when we, are, we are firing on all cylinders on our best days, there are still hints of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, but not with God. 
God's wisdom is pure, it's clean. Someone has said that it's true to the truth. God's wisdom is true to the truth. And in other words, it is the truest truth and the wisest wisdom that exists. And that's what we want, right? I mean, we're making decisions. We're wanting the truest truth and the, and the wisest wisdom so that we can make good decisions. I mean, do you want to drink a bottle of water that's 95% spring water and 5% sewer water? Or, or would you rather have a bottle to drink that's 100% spring water? See, we, we like pure. We, we, we enjoy pure. I remember an older guy telling me um, about the time right after I got out of college, he goes, it's funny when you look at young men, they don't want to date the pure girl, but they want to marry a pure girl. See, even in our sinfulness, we, we like pure. We understand pure. We, we want pure. And when it comes to wisdom and truth, we want the purest wisdom we can find. And that is the only wisdom that comes from above. It's the wisdom that comes from God. But James isn't just talking about clean wisdom. The word that he uses here, it also kind of carries the meaning of clean motives. It's not just pure wisdom, it's pure motives. How, how do you know if your motives are, are pure? Lig Duncan said this, true wisdom isn't always easy to see. Sometimes true wisdom is a hard truth that is hard to swallow. And for that very reason, it's not easy to see. And he gives this example. The wounds of a friend are sometimes hard to distinguish from the barbs of an enemy. It's true, right? Because <laughs> sometimes our friends tell us stuff that's hard to swallow. We, we don't want to hear it, you know. And so we're confused. Is this wisdom? Is this not wisdom? They're telling me something that hurts my feelings. They're telling me something I don't want to hear. So, so sometimes it's, it's hard, but, but that wound from a friend, it's, it's still wisdom. Then Lick says this, but though it's hard to pin down, true wisdom shows itself in its product. Look, none of us are perfect, okay? We're not. And we will make lots of bad decisions in life. But generally speaking, as a pattern, what are your decisions producing? Because your decisions have a product, and the product is a reflection of, of the motives. So your motives are seen in what your decisions produce. That's, that's true for all of us. So, so what does that kind of look like? Well, let's just steal from the Apostle Paul a little bit. He, he makes it really simple. And right into the church at Galatia, he gave the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So the deeds of the flesh go like this. There are things like sexual morality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, hostility, conflict, confusion, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, division, envy, drunkenness, rioting, and a lot of other things like those things. Is, is that what's surrounding the decisions that you make? Things, things like that or the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, none of us are perfect, but, but pattern of life, what are our decisions producing? Do we have decisions that are producing more deeds of the flesh or, or more fruit of the Spirit? What does it look like? Because wisdom from above will fuel your motives and it will feed your decisions and it will form 
what your decisions produce. The wisdom from above is what we need the most, and James says it is first pure, pure. Imagine you're going to make a pumpkin pie. I'm just curious, how many people like pumpkin pie? All right, how many people hate it? Come on now. Yeah, I know you're out there. All right, well, let's just say for conversation, uh, you're making a pumpkin pie. Now, there's a lot of ingredients that are going to go into that pie, but you're going to kind of have to have pumpkin, right? You're going to have to have pumpkin if you're making a pumpkin pie. Well, in verses 17 and 18, James is going to give us a lot of ingredients that are in wisdom from above. But the first and most and most important one, he says, is pure. It has to be pure. Wisdom from above, first and most, must be pure. It's pure in the sense that it's the truest truth. It's pure in the sense that it's the wisest wisdom. And it's pure in the sense it's clean, it's uncorrupted, it's unpolluted because it's coming from the character of the only one true sovereign God. But it's also pure when it comes to to motives because it's pure in the sense that it fuels our motives and that our motives begin to be connected to the character of God, not, not our character or what we want, but the character of God. And when we are being fueled with a desire to honor the character of God, it's amazing how that begins to spread into every area of life. Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, and he said this, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ controls us. If someone were to ask, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means you're controlled by the love of Christ. Now, again, none of us are perfect. We're all sinful. We're not always perfectly controlled by the love of Christ. But generally speaking, if someone says, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you're controlled by the love of Christ. So so what kind of control does the love of Christ have in your life right now? When it comes to the decisions that you are making right now, how much is the love of Christ engaged? Paul goes on and says this about what that love does, verse 15, so that those who live in Christ would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. So if the love of Christ is controlling us, then we understand that the decisions we're making are actually not for us. And we forget that sometimes, right? If we are being controlled by the love of Christ, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, then the decisions we make are not primarily about us. The decisions we make are always primarily about the glory of God. We make decisions first and most for the glory of God, not primarily for us and if we're doing that that means the call of the Christian life is to no longer live for ourselves but to live for Christ first and most we live for the one who died for us and and rose again and if we're doing that that changes how we make decisions how well one day the disciples were having a heated discussion about legacy and and reputation and prominent position and Jesus quickly put the fire out and said you guys need to be concerned about following my example that's where your mind needs to be you need to skip all this legacy reputation stuff and you need to follow my example and what was the example that Jesus set well this is what he said to them that day the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. As followers of Jesus Christ, how we use our time, how we use our money, how we use our careers, how we use our retirement, how we use our leisure time, all of it matters. And it matters so much that we're supposed to use our lives to glorify God. And when we are using our lives to glorify God, automatically something's going to happen. We're also going to be living our lives in such a way that we are following the example of Jesus Christ. And what we do will actually impact and influence other people. It will actually help people be freed from the sin that is holding them hostage. That's what it means when we make decisions with the love of Christ controlling us and an understanding about the glory of God. We realize we are not just making decisions for ourselves or for our families. We are making a decision for God's glory, for God's character. And when that is our goal, God uses that decision to help others find him. These little boxes that we send out all over the world, They aren't just boxes, again, to pat ourselves on the back. There is the gospel contained in these boxes of toys, and they get to the highest mountain of Mexico and the most impoverished people in the whole country, and they hear the truth of Jesus Christ. We are to use all that we have to glorify God, and when we do that, what we do in our decisions will be serving other people. And let's just be honest, we don't really think like that. I mean, sometimes we do, you know, if we're part of a big group or we're a leader or something, we might, well, you know, this, this impacts everybody. Look, I'm trying to get my crew to Arkansas for Thanksgiving. Holy moly. So, you know, everybody wants to bring boyfriends and girlfriends and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. It's great. But I mean, I, I got like 43 people I got to get to Arkansas, you know. And, and so there's so many little parts, you know, and, and we don't all live in the same house anymore. You know, we've got some people in Charleston and, and some people here and there and some people have to be back at work on Monday. And, you know, there's all these kind of things. So, I mean, so I sent out this big, long group text. It's like, all right, if we do this, this happens and this happens. And this, I mean, there's, there's all these things. There, there's, there's lots of things that are wrapped up in it. But all of those decisions, even those decisions, can have an impact on the glory of God and can help people find Christ. How? I'm just playing this off the top of my head. This could be crazy, but let's just say, you know, that we're cruising down the road. I I was going to get one of them big, you know, limo van things, but ah, man, I'm going to have to sell a lot of plasma for that. And, and so, you know, it's, it's like one of those things where we're probably going to get like two cars. So, you know, if we get two cars, well, let's just say we stop at Bucky's in Leeds, Alabama, you know, and I'm waiting on my brisket and the rest of them are ready to get on the road to go to Arkansas. But then some guy comes up and next thing you know, hey, well, you know what? If I've got a car, then I get an extra few minutes to talk to this guy about the Lord. And I know that sounds silly, but it's really not, you know. The decision even of taking two cars instead of one van could actually create the opportunity for someone to find the Lord. So I I know that sounds a bit silly, but I want to encourage us. All of our decisions matter. And when we're downloading wisdom from above, we don't have to be afraid of those decisions. I'm not afraid. (gasps) We've got to get two cars in case I've got to tell somebody about Jesus. You know, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we don't have to cower in fear with our decisions. We're we're able to say, you know what? If I'm downloading wisdom from above, it's going to impact how I think. It's going to impact how I pray. It's going to impact how I speak. It's going to impact how I make decisions. Why? Because in our hearts, when we're always turning toward the truest truth, 
when we're always turning toward the wisest wisdom, when we're always turning toward the wisdom that is from above, what we will be doing is turning toward that wisdom and turning toward that truth that is always spotless. Our decisions won't be spotless. We and our decision-making won't be spotless, but there is a true spotless wisdom that applies to every moment in the life of a believer. What does that mean? When she was a teenager, Johnny Erickson Tata was involved in a diving accident. She has been a quadriplegic since that accident for more than 50 years, I think 55 years now. She's also been married for 41 years. And a couple of years ago, she was writing about her wedding day. This is what she wrote. On the morning of my wedding, my helpers laid me on a couch in the church's bridal salon to dress me in my gown. They heaved and shifted my paralyzed body this way and that, trying to fit me into the dress. But when I sat back in my wheelchair, I groaned. In the mirror, I looked like a float in the rose parade. She said, I was not the picture-perfect bride. And then she described being at the the back of the church, you know, about to, to go down the aisle. And she said this, Then I caught a glimpse of Ken at the front. He was craning his neck looking for me. My heart began to pound. Suddenly, my wheelchair faded away. I had seen my beloved And how I looked no longer mattered. I couldn't wait to get to the front to be with him. I may have felt unlovely, but the love in Ken's face washed it all away. I was the pure and perfect bride. That's what he saw, and that's what changed me. And she said this, Our first glimpse of our Savior may well be like that. Just one look from Jesus will completely transform us. And then she says this, Heaven is the holy habitation where I'll be presented to Jesus spotless and blameless. No one, especially not you and no one else, can present you to God spotless and blameless. Only Jesus It is the place that all of our arrogance, all of our pride, all of our bullying, all of our fear, all of our worry, all of our rudeness, all of our apathy in Christ, we we will be spotless and blameless. If we've been rescued and redeemed by Jesus Christ, we don't have to cower in fear at the decisions that come our way because Jesus has made us spotless before God. We are forgiven and we are free. Johnny goes on. Some think I want Jesus to come back so I can jump out of my wheelchair and walk again. Although at one time that was true. Decades of leaning on Jesus in my suffering have driven my longings for heaven deeper. A glorified body will be nice, but I want a pure heart. I want to be holy. Do you want to be holy? Do you want a pure heart? Can I just confess, if we look at how we post things on social media, 
and how we talk to our spouses and how we act toward our kids and our attitude on Monday on the way to work, we don't always want to be holy, okay? Just, I'm just cutting us some slack here, okay? But if we're truly followers of Jesus Christ, we, we should want it. We should want a pure heart. We should want to be holy. We should want to be changed in that way. And if we do want it, it'll change how we make decisions. If we desire to be holy, if we desire to have a pure heart, it's going to change how we make decisions. With that desire of holiness, she goes on to say this. And so, as with any hopeful bride in waiting, I'm getting ready. Are you getting ready? Are you emotionally and mentally and spiritually thinking about the return of Christ? Is it, is it part of how you think? Is it part of how you pray? Is it part of how you sing? Is it part of how you deal with life? If so, it will be a part of how you make decisions. Can we make perfect decisions? No, we can't. We won't make any perfect decisions this week. We'll never make perfect decisions. But we can make decisions that are fueled and fed and formed by wisdom from above. We can make decisions like that. We can make decisions that are fueled and fed and, and formed from the freedom and safety and confidence that we have that we are totally safe in Jesus and that one day, no, no matter what my decision is today, now again, doesn't mean make stupid decisions, but it means we don't have to be in fear of decisions because in Christ we will be controlled by love, we will be seeking the pure wisdom from above, and we will be reminded over and over again, one day Jesus will present me blameless and spotless. So as we make decisions, we, we turn toward that spotless moment and we gain confidence because that is pure wisdom from above. So, we're about to head out. We're about to make some decisions. Probably starts with lunch. Starts with what we're going to do this afternoon, tomorrow. We're going to make decisions about how we speak to our spouse or whether we speak to our spouse or not. We'll make decisions about how we're going to treat our kids. We're going to make decisions about how we're going to treat our parents, regardless of our age. We're going to make decisions about how we spend money and, and how we spend time and, and how we post on social media and, and what we say at work and school and all the other places. So, so as we set out to start making decisions, dear Christian, I would just simply give us this reminder. Let's make decisions while we're getting ready. Let's get ready.